welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. All right, gang. Um, welcome to you. Again, my name is Micah, if we haven't met. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are some black Bibles in the pews in front of you. If you're in a pew, you're going to need one today. We'll be in Matthew 25. As you turn there, I'll just let you know a little introduction. Um, this is a... Uh, this is a, what do you call it, um, a throwback, as it were. Usually during the summer, we do a series called Lost in Translation. I decided it wouldn't be a good idea to give a whole bunch of guest preachers the task of Lost in Translation, which is to find the most obscure and difficult to interpret passage and like to have a go at it. So like a whole bunch of new people, Mike is gone, just get all the most controversial passages you can find and preach them while I'm not here. Decided that wasn't a good idea. But I love this series, and I've done it multiple times, and so we're going to do a little mini Lost in Translation over the next few weeks. Um, So the idea is, find the most difficult, hard to understand, bizarre passages in the Bible, and have a crack at it. Um, A lot of people don't do this. Uh, A lot of pastors, like, steer clear from the passages that we tend to do in Lost in Translation. Um, And I I was once told that this is a the most unpastoral series that I've preached at Awaken. And, I, and, um, and I, I respect people's opinions and like your experience of me and what we do. But on that one, I was like, I just respectfully disagree. And here's why. I think it's one of the most pastoral series that I participate in, that I offer, that we do at Awaken. Because for many, the Bible is a great source of pain. Like for many of us, when the Bible's misinterpreted and then misapplied in our lives, it can be very painful. It can be a really dangerous book. Can I get an amen? Um, It can be really confusing. So sometimes when you read the Bible, if you've ever just thought to yourself, what in the world is going on here? And why do I care about that? You know, some random thing in 2,000 years ago in the ancient world. Like what does that have to do with me? Sometimes it can be confusing. And so for me and for this community, Awaken, um, a commitment to the value of the Bible is in the center of our community. And so this is an attempt, at least in some ways, to reclaim the things that I believe to be true about the Bible and about the character of God, which I think sometimes get skewed or misinterpreted or, you know, um, and I want to try to reclaim some of those to say, no, I, I really believe that this book is of great value for my life and for our life as a community. And so I want to try to reclaim some of those places where it's gone, uh, when it's gone awry. So that's the intent. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 this morning. You may read this passage with me and think to yourself, Micah, I'm not sure that's lost in translation worthy. I beg to differ. Please stand for the reading of God's word, if you would, if you can. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Excuse me. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags. I have gained five more. He replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you've entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share in your master's happiness. 
The man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have had received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten. For whoever has been given more, they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pray with me. God, as we take a few moments to uh, put our attention and our hearts and our minds towards um, your word, this book, which has lasted for so long, um, I pray that it would do what I think it's always been doing, which is to be a portal, a, uh, a means of revelation, a means of seeing, a means of experiencing the one and living God. So this morning, may that be true. May our experience together be some, in some way, um, an experience of you. So give us eyes to see you, give us ears to hear you, give us hearts that are sensitive enough to know and hear and see and, and sense what you're doing and who you are, I pray. In the strong name of Christ and all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Last week was a sermon that was kind of just a report on my sabbatical. This is like my first sermon back, so we'll see if I've still got my chops. I don't know. Here's where we're going today. I want to ask a few questions about parables, right? We've just read a parable. That's what that was. It's a story Jesus tells. Many Jewish teachers told them. It's a very common literary form or literary device. Like, what is a parable? What's it doing? What's it not doing? Um, what are some of the ways we've interpreted this parable? And then um, what are some questions that still remain with those interpretations, right? Which is sort of a setup for where I want to go, which is I want to try to paint a little bit of the backstory, the context and culture into which Jesus would have told this story and see if that doesn't turn on any lights for us. And then we'll end with a couple of questions to ponder as we think about what we've heard. Um, so what is a parable? I've heard before that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meaning. Have you ever heard that before? Rubbish. I think that's awful. Terrible advice. Okay, Jesus would not have been interested, and the people who told parables in Jesus' day were not interested in telling earthly stories about some far-off, distant experience someday, disembodied, called heaven, right? These were stories told into a very peculiar and specific context, in our case, the ancient Near East, the ancient world of first century Palestine, and they were told by specific people, two specific people, with the intention of doing something. So they weren't just like lessons, like Aesop's fables about what happens when you die someday in heaven, but they were like, they were intended to do something. There's this idea called speech act theory, which is that when we communicate, we intend to like do something to the people who hear what we say. So when I say to my child, you're grounded for a month. Well, there's multiple layers to what I've just said, right? I'm using hyperbole. They're probably not grounded for a month. Although the, if the infraction is big enough, that might be worthy uh, uh, just punishment. But I'm trying to do something, right? In this case, maybe scare them, maybe get them to repent, turn around, go the other direction. So I'm trying to get them to do something. When Jesus tells a story, he's telling people, 
like real people who live in a real world with real politics and societal norms and religious norms, and he's intending to evoke something in them or do something by what he's saying. Um, The rabbis that Jesus would have been contemporary with say that parables are like the handles with which we can understand Torah. Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of Moses, right? So they're the handles with which we can understand Torah. I would argue that the parables of Jesus are the handles with which we can understand the kingdom of God, which he talks about incessantly. Um, The the Hebrew equivalent to the word parable is the word mashal, M-A-S-H-A-L, for those note takers out there. And it means an elusive narrative which is told for ulterior purpose. So a parable is like a, it's an indirect form of communication that kind of like um, deceives the hearer into truth, right? I can say something that's true and say it very straightforward, but I can also sort of come at it from the back door, right? I can tell some story that gets at what I'm trying to communicate as true. That's a parable. So it's a, it's a, a speech act. It's a literary device that teachers like Jesus would use to get at something that's true. You're tracking so far. Everybody following? All right. My version of a definition is an expanded analogy used to convince, persuade, or challenge, or subvert the assumptions and world of those who heard it first. So Jesus is up to something when he's talking, when he's telling these stories. This isn't just fodder for Sunday school and flannel graph, all right? Um, One scholar says this, if we are after the intent of Jesus, which we are, we must seek to hear the parable as Jesus' Palestinian hearers would have heard it. Any interpretation that does not breathe the air of the first century cannot be correct. Clyde Snodgrass, covenant theologian. What a great name. So this is an all-play question. I'll throw this out there. I invite you to shout out answers. That's what all-play is. Um, when, you hear the, when you've heard the parable of the talents, what are some of the ways that it's been interpreted? Or what's the point that you've heard? Throw them out there. What are they? Be faithful with what you've got. Don't hide your abilities that you've got or don't hide them from God or the ones that you've gotten from God. Don't hide them, depending on how you read that. Yeah, what else? Say it again. Stewardship, right? If you've been given something, be a good steward of that thing. What else? Yeah. Say it again. Take big risks. Ooh, I've never heard that preached before. Maybe that's next week. I like it. Any, any others? Yeah. Oh, snaps. I'm going to repeat that, y'all. Some people have used this parable to point to the, to, the, to the fact that capitalism is a biblical idea. Oh, that is a setup. I did not pay him to say that, y'all. So what I'm about to do is take this parable, turn it upside down, shake it, and see what's left. I'm going to submit to you that not much. Not much of what, we've, what I've been told my whole life about this parable is going to remain after I pull the pin on this thing. So I offer this, in all seriousness, I offer with humility. Um, I think a parable, is the beauty of it is that it meant something to the people who heard it first. It's alive, it's active, it's the word of God, so it can mean something to us now that may be consistent with but not exactly specific to what it meant when it first was given. So I'm going to offer this reading of the parable to you for your thought, for your consideration. You may think that I smoked a lot of things when I was in Colorado on our sabbatical. You may think I'm totally crazy. You may think I'm onto something. That's okay. 
The pulpit at Awaken is the beginning of a conversation. It's not the end, right? Often, holla, I get a little snaps there. Often in church, what's said here is like the end of the conversation. Thus saith Reverend Maka. Not how I approach this, okay? It's not how we see what we're doing. I want to start a conversation. So again, you may think I'm crazy. That's okay. Talk about it with people that you're doing life with. Um, not if you all think I'm crazy, please don't all send me an email. I'll send you back to the introduction to my um, sermon today. So, where am I? Oh, possible interpretations, right? We got spiritual gifts. Don't waste, your, don't waste the gifts God's given. Capitalism as a biblical idea. Be faithful with what you have. The key to any of these interpretations is a subtle assumption that we make without even knowing it, which is this. The nobleman in the beginning of the parable, the landowner, the, uh, uh, the master, Luke calls him the man of noble birth, the assumption that we make is this is a good man and or the God figure in the, in the parable. Often we allegorize parables and somebody's got to be God and somebody's got to be Israel or somebody's got to be us and then we try to figure out how it all plays out. The assumption that you have to make to get to any of those conclusions that we just offered, except for the, yeah, maybe even the capitalism one, is that the man of noble birth, the master in the beginning of the story, is the God figure or at least the good guy. A couple of questions that remain with any of these interpretations. Number one, why would Jesus tell a story about spiritual gifts when Acts chapter 2 hasn't happened yet? New Testament class 101, here we go. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God descends on the church for the purpose of enabling and empowering, gifting the church to do and be the things God's called the church to do and be. We call these spiritual gifts. This is anachronistic. Why would Jesus tell a story about something that hasn't happened yet? Jesus hasn't died. He hasn't been resurrected. The Spirit of God hasn't come. The Spirit of God hasn't gifted the church. Why would he be telling a story about this event to people who would be asking him, what are you talking about, man? You see what I'm saying? The timing doesn't match. It wouldn't make any sense for him to tell that story with that purpose. Another question that remains. If you put all of Jesus' work, his stories, his parables all together, and he's not challenging the social, political, religious structures and power of his day, what gets him hung on a cross? Jesus gets hung on a cross not because he was a nice guy, not because he didn't offend anyone. Not because he didn't challenge all of the people who were in the powerful positions at the top of the religious, political, social structures of his day and his age. There was more going on than that, absolutely. But there was at least that going on. So Jesus' parables, they have teeth. They are challenging something. They're subverting something. The last question that remains, which I think is the most convincing on this one, to debunk any of the interpretations I've ever heard growing up, is the following. Why does the third servant respond how he does if that's the God figure? If the master at the beginning of the story is the God figure, why does the third servant say, you're a hard man, you've reaped where you haven't sown, you've gathered where you haven't scattered, I was afraid of you, so I hid your talent? Makes zero sense. Okay, now I've got you. I've set you up. Now I'm about to hit the spike. Without further ado, a graphic, please. This is uh, a picture of the ancient Near East, broad categories like social, cultural structure, all right? So at the bottom, you have the oikos. This is the most basic social, economic, political, and cultural unit of the ancient Near East. That's what A-N-E means, okay? This was the building block of ancient culture. 
You don't even have to talk about the Bible or Jesus or Israel, and this remains true. Babylonian, Assyrian, Sumerian, Egyptian culture, this is the basic structure. And at the bottom layer, you have the oikos, which is the household of the rich, elite, powerful people who owned land. Okay? At the next level, you had the polis, Minneapolis. It's a city. So the city is a collection of all of the influential and wealthy houses in a geographic area. All of the oikoses in a geographic area make up a polis, a city. So just keep the logic going. A kingdom is all of the influential cities made up of influential houses in a geographic area. Think Downton Abbey. Right? Brilliant, actually. It's a perfect example. Lord Grantham, he's the oikos. This is the household. York is the palace. The collection of houses in, in, in York make up York. And then York is a part of the United Kingdom. Right? That's what we're talking about here. So this is the basic structure of the ancient Near East, the world into which Jesus would have told this story. Everybody tracking so far? We're all still on the same page. Okay. Now, if you take one of those, the oikos, let's break that down further because this will start to shed light on our story that Jesus tells. The oikos is the household. And if a kingdom operates in a certain way, and it's a group of cities, which is a group of households, you can imagine that the DNA at the top flows down through the organization or through the structure. So similarly, the top was a hierarchy. It was a bureaucracy of sorts. The, the polis worked that way, and so did the household. So in each household, you have at the top the oikodespotis is the Greek word. That's where we get the word despot, like a powerful you know, tyrant, um, or the master or the head of the house, right? That's Lord Grantham, okay? In our story, that's the man at the beginning of the story who has these servants. That's who we're talking about. The next layer down are the retainers or the agents. Think Tom Branson, the Irish guy. They do the will and the bidding of the master. So they basically, they're middle management in an organization, in a structure. And they essentially do what the master, the person in charge, the oiko despotis, the, uh, uh, the man of noble birth in Luke's telling of this story. They sort of execute what's happening or the, or the will and the wishes of the, of the master. And then at the bottom are the peasants, or the day laborers, or the slaves or indentured servants. These are the people upon whose backs the actual work happens. Okay? This is very foreign to American history. So this is the household in an average politically, religiously, socially wealthy landowner in Jesus' day. Are we all on the same page now? The million-dollar question is the following. How does the oikodespotis, the landowner, the master, how do they get so wealthy? How do they gain their riches? How do they amass so much land in ancient Israel, especially in light of the fact that in Judges 13 to 30, we read the account of God giving the land to all of Israel as a trust, which is to say, people don't own the land. God, Yahweh, owns the land, and it's given on loan to you to tend and till, care for, steward, remnants of chapter 2 or 3 of Genesis, the same thing asked of Adam and Eve, right? Tend and till, care for, steward, how does a landowner amass so much land and riches in Israel when God has said, the land is mine? It's not yours. It's on loan from me to you. And in fact, every 50 years, there is the year of what? 
Jubilee, which says all the prisoners go free, all the debts are canceled, and all the what goes back to the who? All the land goes back to the people who were allotted it first. Why would anyone do that? Capitalism would say, what's up, y'all? Why are you doing that? Like, why would anyone give back the land that they had amassed as wealth? Does it make any sense? We call that, well, socialism. That's interesting. That's another sermon for another day. This is why, by the way, and this wasn't happening in Jesus' day, where everybody had enough and the land was dispersed among Israel equitably and justly. There were people who had a lot of land and a lot of money and a lot of wealth and people who had no land and no wealth and no money. So the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. It's too bad the Bible isn't relevant for us today. The gap between the social elites and the rich and the powerful and the political and the the poor and marginalized was just absurd, which is why Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Micah, the prophets are just ranting against Israel. A couple of examples. Amos chapter 2. The Lord says, The people of Israel have sinned again and again. For this I will punish them. What have they done? They sell into slavery honest people who cannot pay their debts. The poor who can't repay even the price of a pair of sandals. They trample down the weak and the helpless. And they push the poor out of the way. At every place they worship, they sleep on clothing taken from the poor as security for debt. This is in the Bible. Amos chapter 8, he goes on. You say to yourselves, God speaking to Israel, we can hardly wait for the holy days to be over so we can sell our grain. When will the Sabbath end so we can start selling again? Then we can overcharge, use false measures. You can, you can hear the satire, the irony here, right? Fix the scales to cheat our customers. We can sell worthless wheat at a high price. We'll find someone poor who can't pay his debts, not even the pair of his sandals, and will buy them as a slave. This is Israel. Isaiah goes on, chapter 3. The Lord's bringing the elders of Israel and people to his judgment. He makes this accusation. You have plundered vineyards, so your houses are full of what you have taken from the poor. This is just a few samples of the prophets and their word to Israel, who are the people Jesus is speaking to when he tells this parable. You all tracking? This should be heating up by now. We are cooking with fire. Why or how did the wealthy landowners get so much money and wealth? By ignoring Jubilee for sure, but by predatory practices where people in power would leverage their power and their position, preying on Immigrants, uneducated, poor, marginalized people to put them into positions and agreements that were not favorable for them, knowing that they couldn't live into them, and then when they didn't, they would take their land. So here's how it works. Wealthy, powerful people give a loan to a small family farmer who's in dire straits with ridiculous interest rates, and the collateral on that loan is land. And when that farmer can't pay the loan back, what's taken? The land. The most prized possession in an agrarian first century culture. Are you seeing how ridiculously unjust this is? So the rich keep getting richer, the poor keep getting poorer, and the gap between them keeps growing. This is the world into which Jesus tells the parable. Now, let's reread it and see if anything sheds, comes to light. Oh my gosh. Verse 14. Again, it will be like a man, oikos, despotus, right? Top, the household master, going on a journey, calling to his servants, retainers, 
and entrusted his property to them, his resource to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, to one, uh, each one according to his old, own ability. Heads of households would do this all the time. You can't make money playing Nintendo at home, right? You gotta like, you're a businessman, so you gotta go out and you gotta do business. So they would often take trips that were lengthy, and when they were gone, instead of their money and resource and wealth doing nothing, they would entrust portions of it to trusted retainers, agents, to continue to process and produce wealth while they were gone. So, of course, the man leaves, he entrusts some money to his trusted retainers and agents, and their job while he's gone is to keep the machine rolling, keep the money coming in, keep investing, keep doing the things that they do. We could also say keep exploiting so that they could keep making more money. So it's, and it's brilliant, right? It, uh, it's not brilliant, but it makes sense that that's how he responds when he comes back. Because the retainers, has anybody heard of Hammurabi's code? This is like, this was written by the king of Babylon, like, Years and years, long before Jesus ever shows up, it's one of the oldest ancient documents that we still have. And Hammurabi's code says the profit of 100% was the minimum profit accepted under the laws of Hammurabi. So if a, if, a, if a master were to give money to a retainer or an agent, the sort of base level accepted norm would be that when that money came back, the profit would be 100%. So when he says, oh, you gave me five and here are your five back, great. Hammurabi's code, totally makes sense, totally normal. What the retainers would do is actually make a little bit more than that and then pocket the rest. But they'd give back what everybody expected. So let's say I got five talents, I made 12, I give back five to my master because that's what he's expecting and what do I do with two? <whistles> pocket. This is how the retainer class grew their wealth and their power and their influence. Now some people say that this is a test, that the master is giving the money to test the servants. I would argue that in this setting, that just wouldn't happen. You wouldn't give that amount of wealth to untrusted people. These are vetted, vested, like agents of the estate. So you wouldn't give it to some random person to see if they're gonna run off with your money. No, these are, these are like, these are my people who I know will get the job done while I'm gone. How did the retainers make money? Likely the same way that the oikos, despotis, the, the master made the money. Suffice it to say, these are probably not equitable business partnerships with the peasants and the slaves and the day laborers. You know what I'm saying? When a day laborer or when a farmer has money or, or land and they get into a loan where they default and they have to give their land to the, the master, what do they do? Like what choice do you have? Likely you became a day laborer or a slave to the person who now has your land. I mean, gang, this is like, did anyone see the big short? It was about the housing crisis. There was this one scene where they're talking about mortgage banking and then these two just slimy, it was actually uh, the, the one, who's the guy with the pomade from um, um, Zoe, Zoe uh, do you guys know him? Oh, what's that guy's name? Schmidt! It's Schmidt and one other guy, thank you. They're, they're the slimy mortgage bankers, and they're like, so tell us how this works. And they're like, oh, okay, so here's what we do. We basically find immigrants, uneducated, poor strippers, or, or one of those four, or all of those four, and we sell them loans, adjustable rate loans. They don't understand the terms. They're going to balloon in 10 years, and when they do, they're in big, big doo-doo, but they don't care because they get 10 grand on that loan versus two grand on like a fixed prime rate, prime rate loan. So they're like, ACDC said it best. Money talks, so they follow the money. 
This is essentially what they're doing. They're selling like bad loans to people who don't understand what's happening, putting them in situations where they're going to lose their houses and go bankrupt, and they're just profiting off the whole deal. I don't know if that bothers you or not, but that actually happened in our history to people like you and me. And often it was connected to race, well, ethnicity, or where you've come from, immigration. It was awful, awful. That's essentially what's happening in this setting. So now the third servant. Let me see if I can round third and take this thing home. The third servant who previous, whose response previously was kind of like, that seems weird. Like, why would he talk to God that way? Makes all the sense in the world. You are a hard man, investing where you have not sown, harvesting where you haven't sown, gathering where you haven't scattered seed. I was afraid of you, so I hid your money. The guy who usually becomes the foil for the parable, like, don't be like that, idiot, might actually be the person who Jesus holds up as the one to pursue. The one guy who says, I will not participate in taking these resources which have been gained unjustly and invest them for you while you're gone so that you can just keep the cycle going. Actually, I'm going to take it out of the system and I'm going to bury it so it can't do anything. So on sabbatical, yeah, I like that. Woo! On sabbatical, we were, um, the five of us, the Withams, from June 10th to August 5th, we were together the entire time. Like all five of us. That's a lot of family time, people. Ripe scenario for arguments in the back of the car, right? You've been on that road trip before where somebody starts bickering back and forth. They're like, I bought that. No, I bought that. No, those are my dum-dums. No, you're a dum-dum. No, I bought that sucker. No, you're a sucker. I want the iPad. No, you used it last. No, you used it last. Back and forth. Like just lobbing, volleying back and forth. Insults, injury, drama, uh, derogatory language, violence to one another, right? It's just awful. And at which point you say to yourself, I get how people shake their kids. Like, <laughs> like the withams never to be seen again. Why? Because your pastor was in prison for hurting his children. <clears throat> in those moments, you're like, oh my dear living God, please give me patience or these kids will die. <laughs> so Laura and I have developed this little rhetorical uh, exercise where we say, um, okay, kids, so what you're doing right now you're like lobbing insults one to the other. And one throws this way, and the other one like one-ups the other, and it just keeps going. Someone at some point has to make the choice to take the violence out of the system. Otherwise, it's a feedback loop, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing until who knows what. Somebody gets punched in the face, a rock gets thrown at another kid's head. Who knows the number of things that could happen when you don't choose to take the violence out of the system? I wonder, what if this parable... Like, why are the social, religious, and political powers in Jesus' day so mad at him? What gets him hung on a cross? What if the parable isn't primarily about spiritual gifts or what I get from God? But rather, it's a commentary, a critique on a setting that everyone who would have heard this first would have known and seen played out before. Where the rich, powerful elite leverage their power and their money to suppress, oppress, keep down, marginalize those who are at the bottom of the totem pole, only growing the gap between the rich and the poor. And what if the third servant stands as an example of somebody says, I won't play? 
I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not leveraging your money for you, which is gained illegally or illicitly or oppressively. I'm taking it out of the system and I'm, gonna, I'm not playing. What if Jesus leaves the third servant as an example, a commentary, a critique of the systems and structures of Jesus' day that continued to oppress the poor, which is what the prophets are so mad about. So what I'm talking about, this interpretation, it's not out of left field. I think it makes sense. The coin falls in the slat when you start applying this kind of lens. Which is why Jesus is two chapters before in Matthew 23, woe to you hypocrites, you teachers of the law, the whole woes that he gives to the Pharisees. You give a tenth of your spices, you tithe, you do your religious duty, you stay at the top, and yet you forget you've neglected the more important matters, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus himself is critiquing them for this. So what if the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus speak more to or speak to more than just individual souls and some disembodied experience after I die and actually speak to real life in our shoes here and now, systems and structures, politics and policies that we participate in every single day that Jesus' first hearers participated in then and that we participate in now? For example, what if the cross of Jesus speaks to things like systemic racism? like white supremacy or the normalization of white as a culture, as the norm? Like what if the construct of race and the ways in which it tells a, a narrative of difference upon which many of the systems that we profit from and experience every single day, education, housing, justice, were built upon? What if the gospel speaks a word of caution, critique, and warning to those systems and those who participate in them without thinking about it? without asking the tough questions of, as a follower of Jesus, is this kingdom-like activity? Or how about immigration? Or refugees? And the ways in which we use words that dehumanize other people, like alien or illegal. When we say that about another human, it creates a difference and other, a dehumanizing way of talking that actually makes a difference in how we treat people and how we write policies for people and how we participate in justice and government for and with people. This is when other churches would be saying, Amen, Micah! Preach it! We could go down the line on a number of systems or, or structures that Jesus and this narrative, this parable, would critique and offer a word of caution and warning to. So what if the gospel is really about the redemption of all things? All things. About God redeeming all that God's created and the people in it, regardless of ethnicity or sexual orientation or political ideology or any of the other ways that we differentiate ourselves from someone we fear or don't like. What if the gospel is about bringing peace? What if the gospel is about bringing people back towards one another, into relationship with one another, where we don't other each other, to create difference and dissonance and feed off of the gap between me and you. Oh, snaps. Then, if that's true, if I'm on to anything here, then our political systems, our governments, our kingdoms, our economies, our currencies, our schools, our marriages, our relationships, our hearts, our forests, our parks, our rivers, our lakes, everything gets the good news about God and Jesus being resurrected in the world, loose and doing something, restoring, repairing, healing. That actually might be good news for someone who hears it. So three questions. Number one, is this the God that you've been invited to follow? 
Was this the God that was presented to you in flannel graph? Was this the Jesus that you saw on flannel graph? Like Jesus meek and mild? This is Jesus with some stank on it. Like this is Jesus with some teeth. This is Jesus standing with the oppressed and the marginalized, people who are under the boot of systems that push them down, saying, I'm with them. And anyone who isn't is against me. That's a harsh word. Church, followers of Jesus, is this the Jesus you've been invited to follow? And if not, or is this the Jesus that you've declined to follow? Where you've said, ah, I'm not really interested. The, this picture, this, if Jesus, when he tells a parable, if we get a glimpse of God, is this the picture of God that you have in your mind? One who stands up and stands for justice and for hope and restoration and for systems that don't do this to people or this to people. Is that the God that you've been invited to follow? And if not, then I would just invite you to, to consider that maybe, maybe we've been reading with the wrong lenses. And when we read Jesus, he's not just talking about me and my soul after I die, but he's actually talking about real things that matter in real people's lives, like their homes and the food that they eat and the clothes on their back. This is what Jesus is so concerned about. And it's good news. It's hope for any and all. So is that the Jesus you've been invited to follow? If not, I would consider, I would invite you to consider maybe you've misread Jesus or you've misread God. Second question, what are the systems, habits, or patterns in our day right now that Jesus would have a word of critique for? I'm just going to let that one lay for a moment. What are the systems, structures, habits that we participate in daily that Jesus might have a word of critique for? One of my prayers as of late related to me and our church is, God, would you help us see? Can we see it? Can we see those things? Can we name them? And then who are the people near you affected by those things, systems, structures? And how are you being invited to engage? Because if you read this book and don't get the fact that as the people of God, as the church, as the people of Jesus in the world, that you're invited to do something in the world, you're reading the wrong book, or you're reading with the wrong lens, or you're getting bad information from well-intended people, but who maybe are off the mark a little. This is an invitation to participate in the work that God is up to in the world, which is clearly redemption, restoration, reclaiming all the things God made good and called good, so that there's shalom, flourishing, wholeness, and delight for any and all who are here. That's the work we're to do, and that's what we're invited to do. So who are the people around you who are affected? And what's the invitation that you sense God giving you? Your path isn't my path. My path isn't your path. We do disservice to one another when we lob things at the other because they don't care about your path. Doesn't mean they don't care. Maybe they don't, but it doesn't mean that they don't care. Maybe their path isn't your path, so I'm not asking you to do what I do or what somebody else does. I'm asking you to actually pay attention to the work of God in your own life and heart to see, okay, God, what is it you're inviting me to do, to be, to participate in, to be active in, to engage in? That's all I've got. I am really sweaty. 
I'm going to stop now. I'm going to offer a word of prayer and just a moment of silence. So take a couple deep breaths, and then we're going to close with a song or two to kind of keep going down this path of what is the kingdom about? What are the values of it? So pray with me if you will. God, as we take a few moments in silence to catch our breath, to consider what we've heard, I pray that if anything I've said is of you, that it would land, that it would stick, that it would be like seeds planted in a fertile field and that it would grow and that it would bear fruit. And if it isn't, I pray that it would be eaten up by the birds, that it wouldn't last, that it would be forgotten. So Spirit of God, we trust that you're present here now and we, to the degree that we can, ask you to lead us, guide us, turn on the lights, help us see and recognize the places where you're inviting us to participate in the work of redemption, restoration, reconciliation. Speak to us now, I pray. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.